0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Crime Nor Reason. Each week, we discuss different topics related to true crime, the paranormal, and the unexplained.
1: Throughout October, we'll be releasing special Halloween-themed episodes, so you can expect some extra creepy content.
0: I'm Natalie, and this week, I'll be covering the murder at Greystone Mansion.
1: I'm Diana, and this week, I'll be covering the Axeman of New Orleans. So for over a year, from 1918 to October 1919 in New Orleans, Louisiana, Killings began happening, with all with similar M.O.s. The first two victims were Italian grocer, Joseph Maggio, and his wife Catherine. On May 23, 1918, they were asleep in their apartment, which was above the store Joseph worked at. A killer entered the home and slit the couple's throats before bashing their heads in. This killer was dubbed the Axeman. Law enforcement began investigating the apartment where they found the killer's bloody clothes meaning that he changed so he wouldn't look suspect when fleeing the apartment police ruled out robbery as a motivation because the killer left valuables and money behind even though they were out in plain sight Mm, weird about a month later early in the morning Louis bessemer didn't open up his grocery store that he worked out in the morning he was then discovered in his living space behind the store where his mistress and him had fallen victims, similar to the previous case. Lewis had been struck with an axe above his right temple, and Harriet had been hit over the left ear. People were questioned, and one man arrested, although later released. Both victims survived. Harriet's face was partially paralyzed, and two days after reconstructive surgery, she died. Oh no. I know. Authorities suspected that it was Lewis who had attacked her and placed him the in husband? prison. Yes. Well, um, he was, sh- she was his mistress.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he attacked too?
1: He was. Um, he was also attacked, but he was, I believe, released earlier from prison. It wasn't as bad. Or she, since she had gone back into surgery mm, for mm-hmm. her face. And they placed him in prison for nine months before being acquitted. Later that year, on August 5th, Miss Edward Schneider, who was eight months pregnant, was attacked in a similar way. She woke up to a dark figure standing over her and was bashed repeatedly in the face.
0: Yikes. Todd! that's like everyone's nightmare.
1: Yes, it is. Her husband found her after returning from work around midnight. Her scalp had been cut open and her face was completely covered in blood.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: She had survived the attack and gave birth to a baby girl two days later. What? I know. What a strong woman.
0: That's insane. Yeah.
1: So this was around the time where people began to suspect that these killings were connected. Because that's it, the third one, right? Yes, it is. And they all have the similar MO. Mm-hmm. While they were sleeping, someone comes with an axe and then leaves. Five days later, another grocer was attacked. He lived with his two nieces who woke up at the noise coming from his room. The girl saw his uncle was severely injured from bashed in the head and the intruder was fleeing. Joseph Romano passed away two days later from the trauma. The girls were able to see the man leaving. The girls were able to give a short description of what they saw. A dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. So hmm. they didn't actually see any facial features or anything like... I don't know, like a mole or, I don't know, a tattoo or something that would set him apart. But this was
0: definitely the guy that did it.
1: They saw him running away.
0: Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I guess the thing is with eyewitness testimony, that's like one of the most shaky forms of evidence. Exactly. Yeah. So even having that, and especially as he was running away, mm-hmm. you know, how well could you even really seen? And like especially yeah. in a moment of trauma, that's what can make eyewitness accounts so shaky. Right.
1: Right. So this is when people began to get really freaked out and scared since they saw that the killings weren't stopping and that it was a similar way every time. Mm-hmm. And also, many also reported to have seen the man lurking around through neighborhoods at night. Others found axe chisels in their backyards or there are doors or windows that had been tampered with. So that's kind of scary. Huh.
0: Do you think that that's true? Or do you think that it could have been like them being a little paranoid that they might have been... Imagining it a little bit.
1: I think it's a little bit of everything. I feel like the X Men maybe had been tempering with some windows and doors. That would mm-hmm. freak me out.
0: I guess maybe he was trying to see like what houses he could get into. That's possible. Easy,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, but I I don't. You know, I I think that part of it was the fear and people were talking and. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That reminds me of like the case of the Golden State Killer. Um, you know, when it's like someone who is just hitting over mm-hmm. and over, striking these homes, you know, that can spread a lot of fear in the community and right. you, know, you don't know who's going to be next.
1: Exactly. Especially since you see when you see a map and we'll have a photo on our Instagram at Crime No Reason, but there's a photo that marks the order of the killings or the attacks in, that, in the um, New Orleans area. And none of them were, it's not like they were all in one specific area. It's he would kind mm-hmm. of jump around. So it was definitely a surprise wherever he was going to
0: strike next. Wow, yeah. So that makes it hard to predict.
1: Yes, it does. And it makes people be more fearful because there's not a certain pattern.
0: Mm-hmm, like if could hit anywhere.
1: Yeah. So fear continued and many people started carrying guns with them at all times and protecting their families and their homes. And around this time is when the killings sort of stopped until the 10th of march of 1919
0: so how much of a break is that
1: about six seven months about six months
0: okay wow so that's like half a year
1: yeah so at this point i feel like maybe at this point people kind of saw okay everything has stopped and they'd let their guard down a little yeah Mm -hmm. so the x-men attacked a house across the mississippi river charles rosie and their two-year-old daughter were attacked And the screams were heard by their neighbor, Lorlando. And when he arrived, Charles was laying in a pool of his own blood, and his wife was standing at the doorway, holding their deceased daughter.
0: Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Extremely
1: terrible. They were rushed to the hospital, where Charles was released two days later, and Rosie stayed until regaining consciousness.
0: Rosie was the wife? Yes. Oh, my gosh, but that's awful. Their they daughter mess, yeah. ended up dying.
1: Rosie then said that the attack was done by the neighbor and his son, Frank. Orlando was a 69-year-old man who was in poor health and would not have been able to do this. And his son, Frank, was too big to fit through the back door panel. Charles denied Rosie's claims, but Orlando and Frank were found guilty. And based on Rosie's story, Frank was sentenced to hang and Orlando was sent to life in prison. What? Charles divorced his wife after the trial.
0: Wait, did she have any evidence that they did it? Did she see them? No, she just... Oh, my gosh.
1: Everything, they based it on what she was saying.
0: That's terrible. I mean, because it's not like she even had any concrete evidence to point to it being Mm -hmm. them.
1: But I think they just took what she was saying because not only was she a victim, but they didn't have anything else to go off of
0: yeah and god that poor woman lost her daughter like i'm sure she wanted some sort of justice Mm
1: -hmm. but then a year later rosie reversed her claims because she had falsely accused them out of jealousy and spite which i don't necessarily understand but she said she was lying
0: she's jealous of The 69-year-old man?
1: Well, maybe that nothing happened to them and that she was someone who lost. Like she was
0: feeling bitter.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Um, Luckily, both were released shortly after. So, thankfully, the guy didn't get hung.
0: Oh, that's good that it hadn't happened yet. Yeah.
1: And later the week after this attack happened, the newspaper received a letter, which they printed, and it said, They have never caught me and never will. They never see me, for I am invisible. Even as the other that surrounds your earth, I am not human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you New Orleans and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company." If you wish to tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense on the way that they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not amuse me. But his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am. For it was better that they were never born to incur the wrath of the X-Men." I don't think there is any need for such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always judge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you New Orleans think of me as the most horrible murderer, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wish, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my, infi- in my infinite mercy, I am going to make a proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose homes jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well... Then so much the better of you people. One thing is certain, and that is if some of the people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night will get the axe. Jeez. Yeah, so. That's it? Yes,
0: so. It sounds like he has a dog complex about this. Also, sorry, what year was this? 1919.
1: 1919.
0: Okay, so they did have record players. Yes. Because was, he was saying something about a jazz band. So I was thinking like they actually have to have a band come in and play. But yeah, Yeah, that makes more sense.
1: He just wanted everyone to play jazz. I think he just wanted to see how much power he had. Yeah,
0: I think he just wanted to see the effect that he could have and mm-hmm. the power. Like he got off on people having the fear and then now he wanted to see him controlling people.
1: Right. So on March 19th, the street... The street played jazz, and clubs were filled to capacity. Musicians played jazz throughout the the town, and luckily no one was killed that night. That's good. I know. I would honestly be pretty scared. hmm What would you have done?
0: Oh, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, there wasn't really much form of security systems back then. Might I just maybe get a dog mm-hmm. to try and, you know, have my dog watch out? I don't know. What would you do?
1: I feel like I would, in that case, I would feel safer around a lot of people. So I would have probably been, like, in a, some sort of, like, jazz club or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fair.
1: But for that night. But I like yeah. your idea of having a dog just in general.
0: But being in groups of people, it seems like he's only attacking, like, at most three people at a time. Right. So it may help to be in a house that's, you know, a larger family or household.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: Because of too many people, he might be risking being overwhelmed by Mm -hmm. people. You know, he would want to have the advantage when attacking.
1: So no attack happened for several weeks, but on August 10th, another grocer was attacked in his sleep. He ran into his neighbor's house after regaining consciousness and was rushed to the hospital. Nothing had been taken from his home, but the back door panel had been chipped away.
0: So many of these people survive.
1: Yeah, I know. That's crazy. That's, it's great, but it's awful that they went through this, you know? But, oh, I know. Yeah.
0: But then you would think with so many people surviving that they would have a pretty good idea of what the style looked like.
1: Mm-hmm. But I feel like through the trauma, they're not able to kind of piece yeah. anything together.
0: Yeah, that is true. And maybe it was very dark.
1: Yeah. So a few more attacks happened after this one. But the last attack happened on October 27th, 1919, when another grocer was murdered with an axe leaving his wife and six children behind. So the Axeman was never heard from again. No one had see him, seen him or heard from him again.
0: Mm-hmm. Man, but I bet those people were stared for a long time after.
1: Definitely. Like, you know, you don't know when it's going to return.
0: Mm-hmm. And I have heard a theory about this case that he actually traveled around the country mm-hmm. because there was a lot of different cases around the country yeah. that were really similar. So it's thought that he could have been on a train and he would stop off at a random town and, you know, kill people there. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Which in that case, I mean, back then it's hard to really, I mean, even now it's hard to make connections between crimes that happen in different places. Right. So especially back then, it would be really hard to connect all these different um, situations. he could have
1: easily gotten away with this.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's weird to think that he would just stop.
1: Mm -hmm. Or what if it was a spirit?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, could come back this year. Well, it's Halloween month. We can not consider this.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, I think I've heard one theory about this case as well that he was actually Jack the Ripper, that he had come over from <laughs> yeah. England. They're always trying to want to bring Jack the Ripper into this, but.
1: And then from New Orleans, he went up to Illinois.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and built a murder castle.
1: Yeah. We should cover that one.
0: Yeah. So we're talking about H.H. H. Holmes, if you didn't realize. Yeah, there's a lot of theories with Jack the Ripper. But that's a really interesting case.
1: I thought it was interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. I also thought it was very interesting that a lot of the ones who were attacked were grocers. Which, maybe there were just a lot of grocers at the time? Or did he specifically target these people?
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Maybe it made it easy for him to be able to case the place. Mm -hmm. You know, he could go into their store and see. I don't know. I'm assuming that maybe they lived like in the same building as the store in these cases.
1: Uh, at least two that I saw, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I wonder if there's something there then.
1: Yeah, I found that really interesting. I'm I'm curious. Um, did he have... Like, what could someone have against a grocer?
0: Maybe he was a grocer and he wanted to okay. knock out the competition. Ooh,
1: that's a theory.
0: <laughs> that might be a stretch, but... <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, so my sources were... Legendsofamerica.com, BuzzFeed Unsolved. They have a, a pretty good video. Love BuzzFeed they Unsolved. They actually go and visit the some of the locations.
0: Oh, cool. hmm
1: And WBUR.org. So nice. I'm going to hand it off to you. I'm excited to hear yours. All right.
0: Well, I guess we both went in somewhat similar directions this week because I also have a murder and kind of an old-timey case. So... You know, of course, we are doing the Halloween-themed episodes. So one of the things that I definitely think of with Halloween is murder mysteries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, stories like Clue. Um, and definitely one of those factors are really creepy old houses. So and
1: can I... Did you say Clue like the game? Yeah. I love that game. I think, honestly, if... Like, going back in my memory, I think as a child, that's partially what sparked my interest. Oh, in really? Crime. Yeah, just, like, trying to figure out who did this. And, I don't know, I guess the game, like, there's not necessarily something very dark, but it's, like, who, what, what was the weapon? How did they do it? In what room? I think that sparked mm-hmm. my interest. in I think
0: crime. that's definitely an aspect that would interest a lot of us, and yeah. especially in cases like this, is the whole aspect of what happened. And, you know, if, especially if there's any number of things that could have happened, if we don't really know. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that really fascinates me about this case is that it's really like a classic whodunit kind yeah. of mystery where you can come up with any number of things that happened, like any reason why. It's just very open-ended. So I'm very curious to see what you'll think by the end of it.
1: Okay.
0: And also this has like a lot of a who done it, you know, m- murder mystery kind of vibe because of the setting of the story. Like I said, it's, you know, an old timey story. So it's like early 1900s and it's all these rich people and scandals and family secrets and then there's this super suspicious murder and then all of this is centered on this insane mansion. It's just a really fascinating story. So I'm excited. Yeah, so as I said this all takes place at a mansion. So this was called the Graystone Mansion and it is in Beverly Hills, California. And the mansion was completed in 1928. And it was actually a gift from the millionaire Edward Doheny to his son, Ned Doheny. So Edward Doheny, um, the father of Ned, he was born in 1856, and he was the son of poor Irish immigrants, so he was not very wealthy growing up. But he later married a woman named Carrie, and he had a daughter named Eileen. And then at some point, he began mining, and he was hoping that he would be able to find gold, you know, be able to get rich, um, make You know, have himself do better, but he actually was not very successful in this endeavor, so him and his family were very poor. And then by 1892, Edward was in his late 30s, so he was getting older and still was not successful at all in his life. And this was kind of when he was at a very low point in his life because he was almost completely broke. And he was having a very strange relationship with his wife. And then worst of all, his seven-year-old daughter died Mm. after struggling with poor health for most of her life. So he really didn't have much in his life at this point. But then later that year, his life completely turned around when he dug his first oil well. And he struck a ton of oil. Yeah, so I guess, you know, that was really like rags to riches. Mm -hmm. because right away that catapulted him into extreme wealth after a whole life of kind of being poor and not really having much. And then the next year, his wife ended up giving birth to a son. So his only child, his daughter, had died, and then the next year he was able to have a son. So they named the son Edward, and they nicknamed him Ned. So for the rest of the story, I'll be referring to him as Ned. And so Edward really saw this as a change of fate, and he saw this as his second chance. Um, And especially having a son now, he was really determined to give Ned a better life than he had had, because like I said, Ned was his only son and now his only child. So he really wanted to devote his life to make sure that Ned was happy and had everything he could ever want. So when Ned was growing up, his parents did have issues in their relationship And then so when he turned six years old, his parents actually did divorce and his father Edward got custody of Ned. And after this, unfortunately, Ned's mother, Carrie, tragically died by suicide. I think it was a lot of the pain of having to give Ned up that she couldn't she didn't want to live without him. And so after that, Ned was left pretty much entirely in the care of his father and his new stepmother. But aside from this tragedy, Ned had an extremely privileged upbringing. And unlike a lot of stories, he actually really loved his stepmother, and she, you know, really helped Mm -hmm. to raise him. And, of course, as the son of a millionaire, he had anything he could want. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't want for anything. And he, of course, had the best education, so he was educated pretty exclusively at private schools. And he ended up going to Stanford for some time, and he later graduated from USC, I believe with a degree in business. So... Pretty much inevitably, he was pretty spoiled. Um, Many people described him as being so, but he was also known to be pretty easygoing and funny and to actually have a really good heart. And Ned also really looked up to his father, Edward, who, you know, he had worked really hard in his life and he managed to really strike rich and he was doing well. So I think Ned really admired that about his father. So as Ned got older, he ended up becoming more involved in his father's businesses So, he was eventually named vice president of the the Doheny oil business. So, this meant that Ned was really continuing this family legacy, you know, being this millionaire and having, you know, this big oil company. So, it was really um, kind of, I think, what he had planned for for most of his life. And since he was now more involved in his family's businesses, Ned ended up hiring a secretary to help him keep up with all of his affairs. Mm Mm-hmm. So for this position, he turned to a man named Hugh Plunkett. So Ned had actually met Hugh while he had been courting his future wife, whose name is Lucy Smith. So Lucy's family had a gas station, and Hugh Plunkett worked at the gas station. So he ended up meeting Hugh there. But of course, I mean, he worked at a gas station, so he had much more of a working class background than Ned did. But despite their differences, they still became incredibly close, and they even ended up serving in the war together. So they were really best friends, even though, you know, Hugh was Ned's secretary, they still had more of a friendship than just a working relationship. And there was even speculation that their relationship was more than that of friends, and they were noted to spend lots of time together. It's hard to say if this is just gossip or if there was any truth to these rumors.
1: they were very, very good friends.
0: Yes. But of course, at a time back then, you could not be open about things like that. So it's hard to say. But everything ended up changing when Ned Hugh and Ned's father, Edward, were all involved in the Teapot Dome scandal, which at the time, this was regarded as the greatest and most sensational scandal in the history of American politics. So, this was an event that really exposed a lot of corruption and greed that was present in the government. And it was pretty much the biggest scandal up until Watergate. Mm-hmm. So, for years, this was just this monumental um, scandal that really exposed the government. So, I won't get too much into it, but essentially, the Teapot Dome scandal occurred when Albert Fall, who is the Secretary of the Interior and part of President Harding's administration, He accepted bribes from oil companies in exchange for those companies to have Mm. exclusive rights to drill for oil on federal land. So in exchange for giving these government lands to these oil companies, he Mm -hmm. was getting personal money. Right. So it was very much a bribe. And one of these oil companies was, of course, owned by Edward Doheny. So he was really implicated in this entire investigation. And the investigation ended up revealing that Secretary Albert Fall had received a $100,000 loan from Edward Doheny. So they claimed that it was a loan as a way to try Uh and make it legal, you know, that he wasn't just giving this money to him. And $100,000 today is a lot of money, but Mm -hmm. especially back then, that is a lot of money. And so Edward Doheny, he ended up later admitting that it was his son, Ned, who had delivered the cash and that Ned had been accompanied by his friend and secretary, Hugh Plunkett. So Ned and Hugh had been together, and they were the ones that delivered the money. So even though it was more on behalf of Ned's father, Edward, it was those two that completed the transaction. So they were all kind of dealing with this huge scandal, and you know there were all these trials and investigations. But in the middle of all of this, Edward ended up presenting Ned and his family with a massive gift— which was 429 acres of land in Beverly Hills. And that land was eventually built into a huge, sprawling mansion. So it took three years of construction, and it costed $3 million. But the mansion was finally complete, and it was called Greystone Mansion, which I had mentioned at the beginning of the story.
1: Do you have a picture of the mansion? I do. I just... three years to complete? Wow.
0: So we'll put these pictures up on our Instagram, but I'm showing Diana right now.
1: Oh, that's really pretty.
0: Yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, It's
1: got like a little courtyard.
0: mm -hmm. It's a huge piece of land, too. Yeah. So as you can probably guess, no expense was spared in building the Doheny family's dream home. So the mansion had 55 rooms, which I think they were a family of five. So, yeah, that's a lot of rooms. And so some of these rooms included a ballroom. They had their own bowling alley inside. And they had secret passageways.
1: Ooh, And that, that would definitely be cool. intrigued me. I wouldn't know what to do with so many rooms.
0: Yeah, I'm assuming that it would be for when you have a lot of guests. But that's just a massive, massive estate. Yeah. And imagine the amount of people that you'd have to employ to work there. Mm-hmm. So not only that, you know, that it had so many rooms... But also, like I said, it was built on more than 400 acres. So they had this huge piece of land that they converted into gardens. They had stables. There was a swimming pool. And they even had an 80-foot waterfall that could be turned on with a switch. What? Which is pretty fancy for, I think this was the 1920s. Yeah. So, yeah, this was a very opulent mansion. So even though the estate was being built for Ned, he was really the one who oversaw most of the construction of the estate. So, Hugh was his secretary. And Ned was often away dealing with the fallout of the teapot dome scandal. So, that's why Hugh ended up handling a lot of it. And then there was some people who noted that around this time, Hugh had seemed to unravel in some ways. So, his own marriage was kind of dissolving. um, So, he was having personal issues in his life. And then also, he was under a lot of stress and pressure over his involvement in the scandal. Because Ned and Hugh, they had both been called to testify in the trial, but Ned had been promised immunity while Hugh had not, Hmm. which is really unfair because Hugh was just his secretary. You know, I'm sure he was just going along with whatever Ned told him. Mm -hmm. But of course, I'm sure Ned being this super rich person, you know, the court was willing to grant him immunity. And Hugh, like I said, he was from a working class background. So I think there's possibly he may have feared that he would take the blame for his involvement. I mean, I feel like that wouldn't be too much of a stretch for all these insanely rich people to be involved to try and find more of a working-class kind of guy as a scapegoat. But once it was finished, and it was finished in 1928, the Duhini family ended up moving into the Greystone Manor as they had planned, and they continued to live lavishly, you know, despite these ongoing investigations and the scandal that they were involved in. Mm-hmm. So they were living their life as they always had. Um they threw a massive party for Christmas. They even had like their own orchestra. They had 100 couples attending. You know, they had the whole place decked out, decorated. And that then must that has been
1: beautiful. I'm so Oh, I know. I keep going.
0: I'm imagining like great Gatsby yeah, kind of stuff with this feeling. story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then that very same Christmas, Hugh supposedly suffered a nervous breakdown. And this is according to the Doheny's family's doctor, who is Dr. Fishbow. And we'll hear a lot from Dr. Fishbow in this story, but we do know a lot of what we know about the story from Dr. Fishbow. So if he's not reliable, then we don't have a full story. I'll just put that note in. So yeah, according to this doctor, he had a nervous breakdown. And the doctor was then taking care of him. And then so... According to the Dohenies, which was Ned and his wife, Lucy, Hugh had continued to get worse and was almost completely unhinged by February. And Dr. Fishbow claimed that he and the Dohenies had eventually confronted Hugh at the mansion and they had urged him to stay at a sanitarium, you know, for his own mental health. However, it is speculated that the Dohenies may have been trying to exempt him from testifying at the upcoming trial So, if he was sent to a sanitarium for mental health issues, he would not have to testify. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they may have been scared for what he was going to say in his testimony. But, like I said, Hugh had refused to go to this sanitarium. I think maybe, I think he thought that he was fine. And maybe he was fine. I mean, I don't know if we can trust the doctor and the Dohenies. So, he said that he was going to be all right and he wouldn't go. And the rest of what happened, we only know from what has been said by those who are involved. So I'll just tell that version and then we can decide later what we think. Okay. But I will say this version has been very questioned and speculated about whether it's actually true. But according to everyone involved, on the night of February 16th, Ned and his wife Lucy went to visit Hugh at his apartment to try to convince him again to get help. And while there, I guess Ned said something that upset Hugh. It's not really known what he said. So they ended up leaving and they went to go to the theater. And then after they went to the theater, they went and returned to their home at Greystone. And while they were getting ready for bed, Hugh called the manor and he said that he was at the gates of Greystone and that he wanted to come in. But Lucy told Ned not to let him in. I guess she may have been a little freaked out by the way he had been behaving lately. But Hugh ended up entering the home with the tea the family had given him, so he let himself in. And then once Hugh was inside, Ned found him in the guest bedroom that he would often stay in, so he went and he sat down to talk with him. And I guess they just started hanging out like everything was normal. They were apparently smoking and drinking in the guest room, and Lucy had supposedly stayed in her own bedroom while this was all going on. And then suddenly, while she was in her bedroom, she heard a shot. And the next part is what happened according to Dr. Fishbow, the family's doctor. So he says that he received a call from Lucy Mm -hmm. and was told to go to the Doheny home immediately, where he was led in by a guard. And this is what he said. As I entered, Mrs. Doheny was standing in the middle hallway approximately eight feet back from the door and greeted me. She said her husband was in a guest room on the first floor to the left of the hall leading from the front entrance. Both Mrs. Doheny and I started down the hall side by side. A door which partitions the hall was slightly ajar, and I saw Plunkett, Hugh Plunkett, Mm -hmm. walking toward it. You stay out of here, he shouted at me and slammed the door shut. I then heard a shot. You go back, I told Mrs. Doheny, and she returned to the living room, which was about 75 feet away from the guest room. I pushed the door open and saw Plunkett lying on his face opposite the door to the bedroom, where I later found Mr. Doheny. Plunkett, to the best of my recollection, was fully clothed, which is kind of a weird thing to note. Then he said, the door to the bedroom was open, and when I looked in, I saw Mr. Doheny lying on his back, a chair overturned between him and the bed. So, supposedly, when Dr. Fishbow entered the room, Ned Doheny had been shot in the head, and Hugh Plunkett had shot himself just as the doctor had arrived. So, he had witnessed Hugh shooting himself. And once the bodies were found, and you know they were trying to figure out what had happened, someone did call Ned's. <clears throat> someone did call Ned's father, Edward, and this part makes me so sad because Ned was kind of all that Edward had at this point. That was yeah. his only child, his only son, and he was so devoted to his son and really doted on him. So he saw Ned's body, and he ended up kneeling beside Ned and was sobbing. And he was so inconsolable. He had to be carried out of the room. He refused to leave his son. So that's so sad. It is. And then in the following media reports, Ned was definitely written as a hero. So he was kind of portrayed as dying a noble death while trying to help his troubled friend. So you know that Hugh had Mm -hmm. some issues in his life. He struggled with mental health. And that Ned was there trying to support him and ned was shot and hugh shot himself as well so that was how it laid out in the press and then later the official ruling was that hugh had murdered ned and then killed himself either because of a nervous disorder or because he was angry over not receiving a raise which is a very weak motive in my opinion yeah however despite this being the ultimate ruling in the case law enforcement was not convinced And some really doubted the murder-suicide story. And I'm sure that the more I'll tell you, you'll be like, seriously? Really? Like, all of the elements in the story, it just does not line up with what was presented. So the forensic investigator Leslie White, he ended up finding a smoldering cigarette in Hugh's fingertips. And Hugh supposedly had murdered Ned and then shot himself. So it does seem strange that he would have an active cigarette in his right. hand while he was doing that. And especially if the doctor had seen him, as he reported, running around the house and, you know, then running inside. Imagine holding a cigarette mm-hmm. all throughout that. That's very strange. And not only that, but this part is super suspicious. The gun that was found under Hugh's body that was supposedly the murder weapon, it had been wiped clean of fingerprints. Hmm. So there weren't even fingerprints from Hugh, who was supposedly the one who was handling the gun, which just makes no sense. And it also seemed that Ned had been shot at a very close range due to the fact that he had gunpowder on his head. So it kind of suggested that it had been shot like right there by his head. But unlike Ned, Hugh didn't have any gunpowder on his head, which indicated that he was more likely shot from a distance. Which wouldn't make sense with the story because, you know, if he did shoot himself, he would have the gun very close to his head. And also, I think the most suspicious and the most telling fact in this case is that Hugh had been shot in the back of the head, which he was the one who supposedly killed himself. Yeah, and that's an, its just an extremely unnatural position for the someone attempting suicide. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even try to do that with your arm—it's just. That's extremely awkward to do, and it just doesn't make sense. So added up with the fact that he didn't have gunpowder on his head and that the wound was in the back of his head seems very suspicious to me. And not only that, but Dr. Fishbow was caught in several lies. So he withheld the fact that Ned had apparently been alive when the doctor had entered the room, that he was still, he was unconscious, but he was still breathing. So he wasn't dead like the doctor had said. And then also, much of the witness testimony seemed very rehearsed between Dr. Fishbow and Lucy, and they were both very shaky on the sequence of the events that happened. Mm. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And another really suspicious element is, like I said, Lucy had called the family doctor, Dr. Fishbow, but she didn't call the police. That is weird. Yeah, that to me, if you hear a gunshot in your home, your first instinct would be to call The police. But she called the doctor, and not only that, but the police weren't even called until 2 until o'clock a.m., even though the shots had been fired between 11 and 11.30 p.m.
1: What time was the doctor called? Like, right away?
0: Yeah, I think she called the doctor, like, right when it happened, that she had heard the shots. So as he arrived there shortly after the shots had been fired.
1: Do you think maybe she was, like, just trying to save his life first rather than... I'm just trying to think through why
0: <laughs> why she would call the doctor yeah. first
1: even though a gun shot.
0: Well, I think what first. I would do, I would assume that the police would have a doctor. I would say, "Hey police, we need a, That's a doctor true. here." Yeah, you right? know? Yeah. It just seems like a very sketchy situation. And then also from what I could gather from this, it seemed like Dr. Fishbow was a bit of a family friend. So mm-hmm. maybe she was calling someone who she thought could, help could keep her a out. secret yeah. could help her out anything along those lines and kind of adds to this theory is that when the police arrived they noted that the bodies seemed to have been moved from where they were originally placed so that makes me think if they were shot sometime around 11 and the police weren't called until 2 p.m 2 a.m i mean mm-hmm. that gives them about almost three hours Enough time to do anything to the crime scene,
1: wipe down the gun.
0: Yeah, if they wanted to set it up in any certain way. Mm -hmm. But despite all of this weird evidence, the police ended up reaching the conclusion that the deaths had happened as Lucy Doheny and the doctor claimed. Though a lot of detectives were not satisfied with this conclusion. But I wonder if the status of the family probably had something to do with that verdict that, you know, is a very wealthy, supposedly respectable woman and a doctor. And their story was that this man who was of a lower class and potentially had some mental illness, it's probably much easier for them to accept the story that he killed this wealthy man and then killed himself than any other alternative. And especially, I'm sure they wouldn't want to point fingers at Lucy Doheny Which is terrible, because you should consider every suspect in Mm -hmm. every scenario. But another very strange element to this case is that when the bodies were ultimately buried, Ned Doheny and Hugh Plunkett were buried very close to each other in a secular cemetery. So this raised some more suspicion, because Doheny and his family were all Catholic, And they even had their own devoted burial plot in a Catholic cemetery Mm -hmm. where the rest of the family was buried. So this led to a lot of theories and speculation that the family knows what really happened that night and isn't telling the truth. Because at that time, people who had died by their own hand were not permitted to be buried in Catholic cemeteries. Wow. So it seemed like an outlier that Ned was not buried in the Catholic cemetery. And, you know, possible explanation for that is because the family knew that he had not actually been murdered. So I guess you've heard the official version of what happens, but of course there are a few alternate theories that have been suggested. So I'll go over some of those. So as I touched on earlier, there were rumors that Ned and Hugh were more than just friends and that they actually had a secret relationship. And so it's not that the deaths could have been a result of potentially a fight between lovers. Um, I'm not sure that I necessarily think that that's possible. Mm -hmm. That, you know, they could have had a lover's quarrel and ended up fighting. I mean, it doesn't seem like that necessarily connects.
1: It's kind of a big extreme.
0: Yeah. But I will say, I liked this theory, is that some think that Lucy may have walked in on the men... Together okay. and that she shot them herself. So
1: that would explain who was it that said and they were that noted they were that he was fully clothed.
0: That was the doctor. The doctor.
1: Mm-hmm. Why would anyone, like you say, go out of their way to specifically say that?
0: Yeah, that is a weird thing because maybe he wasn't fully clothed when he right. found him and that was him trying to establish mm-hmm. a different story. But I think that this story has some credibility because. I don't know. I just imagine what if Lucy did walk in on something? She really kind of distanced herself from the crime. She made it clear she was in another part of the house. But then also that they were hanging out in a bedroom. I don't know if that was normal, but they have all these rooms in a house and they are hanging out in a bedroom. I think that that is a little bit strange. Yeah. And that, you know, I just wonder if what if she had walked in and seen something and she just got angry or freaked out. And that she committed the murder against Hugh. And, you know, of course, that one was from a distance and from behind. Mm -hmm. So she could have done that. And then maybe Ned killed himself because of what happened or she killed him. I don't know.
1: That is interesting, though.
0: And then also, I, I don't know necessarily the Catholic burial traditions. But I wonder if, aside from... component of suicide preventing you from being buried in a catholic cemetery if there could be any aspect of homosexuality i wonder if that could be any element of why he would not be buried there if the family knew of a secret relationship that's true i didn't even think about that yeah i don't know i think that there is something to that theory and it's also possible that maybe hugh had threatened to tell lucy about their relationship and then so Ned ended up shooting him to keep their relationship a secret, but then maybe felt really guilty and killed himself. That's another possibility. Like I said, oh, there's man. so many possibilities yeah. in this case. You can imagine all these scenarios.
1: I feel like if if they were in a relationship, I was going to, I guess we don't even know if they were in a relationship, mm-hmm. but if, if they were and he actually cared about him, how could he bring himself to do that? I don't know that,
0: yeah, it Unless does seem Unless it wasn't, strange. like, a
1: an emotional relationship, at least on one side.
0: Mm-hmm. And like I said, there wasn't really any real evidence that Ned and Hugh were in a relationship, mm-hmm. so it's often labeled as gossip. But, I mean, if they were in a relationship, it, of course, would have been kept secret. And it would have provided more motive to the crime. I think there could have been more scenarios that yeah. you can imagine motive. because. I mean, the motive supposedly was that Hugh shot Ned over not being given a raise, which I think is an extremely weak motive Yeah, because he wasn't just his employer. Ned was like his best friend. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But a more commonly accepted theory is that the murder-suicide was a result of the growing stress from the aftermath of the teapot dome scandal that the men were implemented in which I think that has some credibility, too. I mean, this was ongoing right at that time. So to me, it makes sense that there would be Mm -hmm. some sort of connection between these two major events, you know, that happened within this one family. So it's possible that possibly Ned feared that Hugh would reveal something in his testimony that would implicate him or his family. Maybe he questioned Hugh's loyalty to the family and he was afraid at the upcoming testimony, Mm -hmm. you know, that something might come out. And then maybe he killed him as a way to silence him. But then again, I don't understand why he would kill himself then after. And then another alternative is that Hugh may have killed Ned over the intense stress that he was facing as a result of the scandal. And that he may have blamed Ned for involving him. And he was really frustrated that you know he could have been found guilty while Ned was promised immunity for his part. So I hope you did keep straight who's Hugh and who's Ned.
1: It was a little tricky. Yeah. But at the same time, I kind of, I mean, I understood.
0: Yeah. But ultimately, I mean, the story is that Hugh killed Ned and then killed himself. And I, I don't know if that's true.
1: Hmm.
0: i would kind of been leaning more toward Ned having done it just based on the evidence that they found.
1: I'm still thinking about it took them three hours, three or four hours to call the police. Mm-hmm. What happened in those hours? And
0: also keep in mind, the people that we heard from that Hugh had mental issues, mm-hmm. that was from Lucy and the doctor. hmm That was what they had said. So that could have been them trying to establish a motive, you know, to say, oh, well, yeah. he had these issues and that's why he did this. We don't really know from any other sources whether Hugh really did have these issues in his life. I don't know. I would be interested if... We had had, you know, if with our modern technology that we have now, how this case would have gone different, you know, the investigation Mm -hmm. and all that. So after this incident, Lucy continued to live in the home with her and Ned's children. And she later remarried and she moved out of the home, of course, for a more manageable living space, but it probably didn't have 55 rooms. And so after that, the Greystone Mansion was eventually purchased by the city in 1965, and it was later added to the National Register of Historic Places.
1: Is it a hotel now?
0: No, it's not a hotel, but the grounds are still open to the public today. So they use it in a lot of cases to hold events. Um, They'll have like charity balls in there, um, different things like that. And I saw that they even have a murder mystery show. Oh, wow. That they host there. That's cool. It actually recreates the story of Ned Doheny and Hugh Plunkett. Yeah, (laughs) which I feel like that would be fascinating to see. That would. And it's also used in a lot of film and TV productions. Oh, nice. So a lot of movies and TV shows you'll see will actually have been filmed there. So, like, I don't know if you've seen the show Gilmore Girls, but one of the characters goes to, uh, like, a private school, and Mm -hmm. all of those scenes are filmed at that manor
1: oh wow
0: and also another example i think i saw the spider-man movies they really? had scenes that were filmed there yes yeah, so pretty major productions and apparently this family the doheny family and this whole story it was one of the inspirations for the 2007 movie there will be blood and i've actually seen that movie and when i was researching this case i was like this reminds me a lot of there will be blood and then oh, so I found out the yeah. end; it was inspired by it. Nice. And they actually had scenes of the movie were shot in that mansion, including, like I said, they had a bowling alley in the mansion. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the movie, there's a murder scene that takes place in that bowling alley. Oh, wow. Yes. I think that's fascinating. And like I said, you know, so people still are going to the house today. So there have been some reports that the house is haunted, apparently. But I feel like that's, you see any old-timey mansion, and that's and the assumption yeah, that you, you make. Jump to that. Mm-hmm. So there have been reports that people have seen the ghost of Lucy Doheny, and people have reported smelling her lilac perfume. And people have also seen shadowy figures looking out the windows, and nope. they've felt an eerie presence when they're going around the house. No, no thanks. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it has all of the ingredients to become a haunted house. <laughs> it definitely so. does. So my sources for this story were History.com, TheLineUp.com, and KCET.org.
1: I think this was a great episode.
0: I did too.
1: That was good.
0: You know, old-timey murders, they always hit a little bit different.
1: Mm-hmm. There's always
0: like an added layer of like mystery and creepiness. Yes. I just find them very fascinating. So thanks for joining us this week. If you would like to see pictures from this episode, follow us on Instagram at crime nor reason.
1: And join us next Wednesday for another spooky episode as we celebrate Halloween together. Bye! Bye.